This morning, I have the privilege of once again opening up God's Word as we press on with our series in the New Testament book of Ephesians. Today is our ninth week in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and wow, what a blessing it has been to journey through this book. Amen? Typically, that's how we do things here at Rooted Fellowship. We preach through entire books of the Bible. We go through them line by line. And last week, Pastor Stephen did such a great job in unpacking for us Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 21. And he reminded us to wake up, right? Wake up to who we are in Christ and thus how we ought to live. Now, family, you may recall that throughout this entire sermon series, we have been saying that the book of Ephesians is essentially broken up into two parts, okay? Essentially in two parts. The first part, found in chapters 1 to 3, reminds us about who we are in Christ. And in these three chapters, Paul beautifully tells the roots or the story of the gospel. That all people born into this fallen, sinful world have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That we are all in desperate need of a Savior. But then Paul then tells us that that Savior has however come. His name is Jesus, God the Son. He lived the perfect sinless life. He died an all-sufficient death. He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. He has ascended to be with God the Father in heaven. He sent us God the Holy Spirit to empower and equip his church on earth so that we might make more followers of him. And he is coming back to make all things new. Amen? Paul also reminded us that through this gospel-saving work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus or Christians are now united into one body, the church. That is who we are, fam. That is who we are in Christ Jesus. Now, in the second part of the book of Ephesians, Paul double-clicks on the fruit or the implications of who Christians are in Christ. From chapters 4 onwards, he speaks about how we ought to walk and live in light of who we are in Christ. How we are to be children of the light, God's manifold wisdom on display. And that's exactly what Pastor Stephen woke us up to last week, reminding us to bring our faith, our Christian walk, indeed our entire lives in line with who we are in Christ, by being continually led by God's Holy Spirit. We are led by God's Holy Spirit as we seek to be God's new community on display. Amen? Okay, and so after that section in chapter 5, we now come to this section in the book of Ephesians where Paul gets super, super specific. Okay, he's going to get really specific. We've identified who we are in Christ. We've seen how we should live. And now Paul gets I want to call it fine-tooth comb specific about exactly where we should be living out our faith. And so here towards the end of chapter 5 and at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul deals with three specific relationships. Okay? He deals with three specific relationships where Christians are called to live out their faith. How we are called to imitate Christ. Remember from Ephesians 5.1, we are called to imitate Christ. And we see how these three relationships are meant to reflect the beautiful gospel picture between Jesus Christ and his church. In the following verses, Paul begins to focus on the context of the household. 
with the Christian household being the basic expression of Christian community, okay? Christian household is the basic expression of Christian community. And this morning, I'm going to be dealing with just two of those three relationships as I, I'm going to be digging into Ephesians 6, okay? So this morning, I'm going to be dealing with two of the three relationships as I dig into Ephesians 6. But let what I've just shared serve as somewhat of a trailer attraction to what is coming next week, okay? Because next week, we have something super exciting planned. I notice I say that a lot at Rooted Fellowship, but we do. Okay, so come back next week. It's something super exciting planned, not just Spaces First Sunday. Next week, Pastor One is going to be taking us through the marriage relationship, which Paul deals with in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. And so Pastor One is going to come back. He's going to finish up Ephesians 5 as he preaches on marriage next week. And so family, that means that we can prepare to dive into our text in Ephesians 6 today. And we're going to be checking out Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9. But before we get into our text, before we read our text this morning, I think it's crucially important for us to take note of something. You're going to see in a minute that in verses 5 to 9, Paul addresses slaves and masters. However, family, it's vitally important to note that whilst Paul acknowledges that this relationship existed and the fact that it was going on in first century Ephesus, Paul does not condone slavery. Okay? In fact, Scripture, Jesus Christ himself, and the Apostle Paul are very much against slavery. So what's up with slavery in the Bible? People often want to know if the Bible condones slavery. And as we read this text this morning, you, you may ask yourself, why doesn't Paul just come out and outlaw it or abolish it as the injustice that it is? And so people ask, is Paul condoning slavery? And the answer, family, is no. And neither does the rest of the Bible. But how do we do, how do we know that? Well, the Bible says that God's people are to love our neighbors. And family, you cannot own who you are called to love as your possession. We are to treat others as we would want to be treated. We saw this last year as a church when we went through Mark's gospel. And Jesus says in Mark 31, love your neighbor as yourself, which forms part of the great commandment. But we don't just see this in the New Testament. Slavery and slave masters are never viewed or described positively in the whole of Scripture. Right? Slavery is present all throughout the Scriptures as a symptom of this broken and sinful world. And in fact, in Exodus, the nation of Israel is in slavery under Pharaoh, who was never viewed positively. In fact, God comes and redeems Israel from that very slavery. We saw that in our previous sermon series in the book of Exodus, right? In fact, in Genesis, uh, we see Joseph was a slave, Daniel was a slave, and never is that slavery described positively. Never. And as Christians, we know that one of the pictures of the gospel is, in fact, freedom from slavery. Yes, slavery to sin, but slavery nonetheless. Christianity is a freeing the captives' faith. Amen? We have been freed, and so we long to see others set free and liberated from the way that sin enslaves and binds us. And the Apostle Paul here in our text today and in other texts most definitely undermines the worldly system of slavery. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul calls out human trafficking as a vile sin because he says slave traders break the commandment prohibiting stealing. Slavery is stealing, stealing opportunities, freedom, dignity, and choice, and so much more. In Galatians, Paul teaches about the equality of individuals, which was completely revolutionary in the first century. 
And in Galatians 3.23, he says that there is no difference in status. No difference in status between believers in Jesus. Instead, we are all equal before Christ. We are all one in Christ. Amen? Paul even tells the believers in Corinth in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says to the slaves amongst the believers there, he says that if they are able to obtain their freedom, then they should do it. But family, I think the most remarkable book in the Bible that addresses slavery is the book of Philemon. And in this book, there is a slave named Onesimus who has run away. He then meets uh, Paul. He becomes a Christian. Paul then sends him back to Philemon and tells Philemon to receive him back no longer as Philemon's slave, but instead as a brother. And so, with all of that being said, we're going to come to our our text for today. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 9 of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And uh, this morning, we are privileged to have Kendra Sishi. She's going to come and read us and lead us in God's word. And we're going to be reading from Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9 from the Christian Standard Bible uh, you can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles, on your devices. Can you, if you can come stand up here. Um, and I'll tell you what, family, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Turn this off. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a purpose so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, do not stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Do not work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will for your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your, sa- your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their masters and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Amen. Amen. Family, this is the word of the Lord, and so thanks be to God. Thank you, Kendra. Let's give it up for her. I think she did a great job. Let's pray. Father, this morning we acknowledge you as our perfect father today. We come before you, Lord God, as your people gathered here, acknowledging you as our perfect Lord and Savior. Lord God, we come before you as a people in desperate need of you. This morning, Lord God, we come from brokenness. We come from trials, tribulations. And so meet us here, Lord God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and use me to speak your truth, to build up your church to glorify the name of Jesus. Lord God, I pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds to what you would have us hear, say, and do. Here's our hearts, Lord. Here are our hearts. May you remind us of who we are in you. May we see, Lord God, how we are to go and live out our faith in you, Jesus, by being imitators of you 
in these, in these relationships we're going to deal with today. Come and do something mighty. I pray for those who maybe don't know you here this morning, Lord God. I pray that you would come and move, speak to them. Draw us closer to you and closer to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Okay, so family, after reading this word, it's important to note that the key element in making a Christian household thrive is for all the participants within it to, in all things, follow Christ's example, right? Follow Jesus' example. Somebody say, follow Jesus. Everybody say, follow Jesus. Yes, amen. If you take one thing away from this message this morning, follow Jesus. Now, if you're not a parent or a caregiver, you may be tempted to check out for the next four or so verses and check back in in verse five, right? No, 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 no. Because we have seen that as believers, we are one in Christ, right? And so what is my brothers and sisters in Christ is also mine. And so family, the children in the families here at Rooted Fellowship are also our collective responsibility as well. Amen? The men of our church are called to be spiritual fathers to the young children at Rooted. The women of our church are called to be spiritual mothers to the young children here at Rooted Fellowship. And perhaps this morning you're a younger child here today today with, with, with your parents and maybe you have a strained relationship with one of your parents or um, perhaps even one of your earthly parents has passed away or maybe both of them have passed away. To you, I say, just as Jesus said to his followers, here is your family. Here is your family. Here are your mothers and fathers. We are the family of God. And so fellow adults, these words apply as much to you and to me as they do to the caregivers and parents amongst us. From now on, when I say the word parents, if you're a Christian raising children in some shape or form, if you're a fellow brother or sister at Rooted Fellowship, well then these words apply to you. You see, because as Paul writes these words, he has the Christian family specifically in mind. He's writing to Christian households in Ephesus after all. And then kids, where there are things that you see in the text this morning today, where there are things that you can expect from your parents, I want you to know that these are things that you should be able to expect from the family of God here at Rooted Fellowship. And so we come to verse 1, verse 1 of Ephesians 6, which says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Now, it's important to note here that Paul's, Paul specifically addresses the younger children who are still dependent on their parents, right? But he addresses them and acknowledges them. And so clearly this means that younger children form part of Christian worship gatherings, where God's word was read, taught, and preached, and where the family worshiped together as the family of God. In fact, he takes it for granted that these younger children would be present in the gatherings because they too belong to the family or to the church. What's amazing about this verse is that, there, that we have Paul addressing the less privileged, less powerful, subordinate group in the society, namely young children. And he gives them priority recognition. Paul addresses children first before he addresses their, their parents. And this was completely countercultural to first century Ephesians. It's still very countercultural today. 
We require that we greet parents and then their vulnerable young children, right? But here, here is the gospel completely transforming this. Family, from this verse, we can clearly see that young children are to form part of a local, local church's corporate worship. And they are to participate in those gatherings and be formally recognized and addressed. It's one of the many reasons that I love how we do things here at this local church. Here at Rooted, we say that we partner with parents and caregivers in the discipling of their children. We don't offer childcare, we don't do Sunday school whilst parents and caregivers go to real church or whilst parents and caregivers go for a two-hour coffee break. It's also one of the reasons that when kids are old enough to join this gathering, we invite them in to do so. And it's also one of the reasons that when COVID protocols allows us to once again, we invite all children and include all of our young children in the larger corporate gathering for praise and worship. Some of y'all will remember those times in our previous venue. We have our kids in for our praise and worship, and it is a blessing. Because we want them to know that we are indeed one body and that they have a unique role to play in that. It's also for this reason that we started family groups for families with younger kids, which meet on, of all nights, Friday nights. Because corporate family groups are not meant to just cater for parents and caregivers. What a joy it's been to see children within family groups become such close friends and hear the stories about how these kids look forward to, to going to Friday night family group, possibly even more so than their parents do. Right, Mo? <laughs> Sorry, I'm showing your confessions here. <laughs> Family, as we seek to thrive at our Sunday gatherings and at our midweek gatherings, it's crucial that the children of our church play their part and find their place in that. Amen? Okay. But now, now that Paul has addressed them, what does he then say to these younger children? Well, he instructs them to remain obedient, to listen to the advice of their parents. And we've seen this throughout Scripture. This is not something new. To Christians. Isaac's willingness to be offered as Abraham's sacrifice in the book of Genesis is an example of such submission. And in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, we see that, that disobedience to a parent is a symptom of a disintegrating social structure. And it's clear that Christian families and communities have a responsibility to not, uh, to not contribute to the collapse of a community. The great parenting manual, the book of Proverbs, says in Proverbs 15.5, says, A fool spurns a parent's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. And so young children at Rooted, you are called to be obedient to your parents and caregivers. And all the parents said amen, right? I thought that was going to be the loudest amen I ever got up here. But what does Paul mean when he says in verse 1, Obey your parents in the Lord. Well, it means that young children are not only to simply follow Jesus' example, but they are also to realize that both them and their parents are under the authority of the living Savior. Paul even describes this as being the right thing for young children to do in Colossians 3, verse 20. He says, For such obedience to parents even forms part of the divine law, part of the Ten Commandments. Now here, Paul refers back to the fifth commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. When he says in our text for today, and you can put it up, verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 6, it says, Honor your father and mother, 
which is the first commandment with a promise. First commandment with a promise. So that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Family, these two verses now apply not just to all of the younger children dependent on their families here, sitting here, but this verse applies to all of us children who, who are believers. Remember, Paul is addressing Christian households. And so no matter how old we are, we are to honor our parents and elders. It's interesting to note that the fifth commandment is the first one that has a promise attached to it, essentially saying that it is wise to honor your parents and elders and that such wise living leads to long life. We see this in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, Proverbs, and now in Ephesians as well. But don't miss it, family, because for Christians, this long life that Paul is referring to is not the promised land of Canaan, but rather an eternity spent with the Lord our God. Family, on this continent, we are so blessed and privileged to be surrounded by cultures that really honor our elders. These cultures cherish elders' wisdom. They defer to their authority, and they pay real attention to their comfort and happiness. And this ties in beautifully with how we are to live as Christians, seeking to love and serve others. However, family, please, let's not misunderstand honor for blindly follow. We must not misunderstand honor for blindly follow. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to ever do anything sinful to cover up sin and injustice, even if our parents, our caregivers, or our elders tell us to. We are not called to cover up anything sinful, to do anything sinful, or cover up injustice, even if our parents, caregivers, or elders tell us to. In such a case, we are rather called to obey God our Father, our perfect Father, we see this, Acts 5, verse 29, where Peter and the apostles say to the council trialing them, they say, we must obey God rather than any human authority. There is a difference between blindly obeying and honoring. Obeying means to follow what one is told, but to honor means to love. Children are never commanded to disobey God whilst obeying our parents. Children are not called to be subservient to abusive, domineering parents and elders. But we are called to love them. And family, in some situations, loving them may require us to set boundaries. Loving them may require us to limit contact or even to cut, to, to cut ties. If you're struggling with a toxic or difficult relationship with your parents, I would really encourage you, in fact, I'd urge you to reach out to a brother or sister in the Lord to invite them in to pray with you and to help you navigate what obeying Christ and honoring your parents may look like in your particular situation. Especially a situation that may feel toxic or unhealthy or overwhelming. We then come to verse 4. Verse 4, it says, Fathers... Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So in Ephesians 6 verse 1, Paul addresses parents, right, fathers and mothers, spiritual fathers and mothers, whereas here he specifically only mentions fathers. Why is this the case? Well, Paul now turns his attention to the heads of the households, which of course the church recognized as the fathers. And here Paul is addressing them as the representatives of the family. 
but he is also very much speaking about the duties of Christian parents, right? Once again, all of us. Remember, if you're a believer, you are a Christian spiritual father and mother. The child-parent relationship is not one-sided. Take note of that. The child-parent relationship is not one-sided. A standard feature of Paul's treatment of the household relationships is that the stronger have obligations to the more vulnerable. The stronger have obligations to the more vulnerable. The gospel introduces a fresh element into parenting by insisting that the child must be considered. And in a society where a father's authority was absolute, this was completely revolutionary. Christian parents are to bring up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. A parent's role is to model obedience to God the Father, as Christ did, and then to teach this to their children so that when their children grow up, they in turn will know what it looks like to obey God. But together with teaching children obedience, parents are called to be loving and tender toward their children as they treat their children justly. Christian parents are called not to anger or exasperate their children, which means that they must not needlessly punish or rebuke them. Discipline needs to be consistent, and they must not place unnecessary hardships on their children. Parents are called to make their children, uh, to not make their children angry without good cause. Parents are called to not make their children angry without good cause, and discipline should be only done in a loving way that ensures a child's future welfare. Discipline should not be overly severe. And Christian parents need to be careful not to grieve or harden the tender hearts of their most precious position, their children. Discipline should never come from a place of impatience, as we Christians are called to be long-suffering. And we need to remember that the authority given to us by God is to be used for the benefit and encouragement of children. Family, parental discipline is to help children grow, not to discourage them. I think it goes without saying that parenting is not easy. It takes a lot of patience to raise children in a consistently loving, God-honoring manner. And I'm sure the very best of y'all get frustrated. But parents are called to act in love to treat their children as Jesus treats those whom he loves. Because this is vital for a child's development. But it is also important for their discipleship as well. It's important for their discipleship, their walk with the Lord, because they learn what Jesus is like from their parents, their caregivers, their spiritual mothers and fathers. Christian children should learn grace and forgiveness from their parents and church family. They should not learn a type of moralistic pride which berates and puts down others when they fail, they sin, or they struggle. And so, Rooted Fellowship, this morning I'll ask us, how are we disciplining the children of our church? As they watch us, do they see humble obedience to God's word? Do we model confession and repentance and forgiveness before them? Do we apologize to our children when we get things wrong, no matter how young they are? How do we respond to failure and disappointment when we are in front of them? 
How do we deal with their failures and their mistakes? Are our homes places filled with fear or forgiveness? How do we deal constructively with our anger when they're around us? If they, if they looked at us, would they see Jesus? We'll conclude this section with this. We've seen that both children and parents have a responsibility to one another, right? Both children and parents have responsibility to one another. Children are called to honor their parents, and parents are called to gently care for their children. But family, this will only happen, can only happen beautifully when both children and parents submit and emulate Christ's example in love. And so we then come to verses 5 to 9 of, of Ephesians 6. But before we get deep into these verses, we need to examine what was going on around these verses, okay? You see, family, Paul is still concerned with the Christian household. He's still speaking to households because the majority of slaves in first century Ephesus were employed within the home. One Bible scholar says that it was estimated that at this time, first century, there were over 60 million slaves across the Roman Empire, which is about one-third of the population, okay? Many of these people were becoming Christians, uh, and of course, most would have been in the employment of Greco-Roman God-worshipping households or pagan-worshipping households, but a few would have been in the employment of Christian households as Christianity began sweeping across the empire. And we're also going to see in a minute that Paul addresses these Christian servants on an equal standing with their household heads, whether these masters were Christians or not. And he acknowledges their work with respect and dignity. Now, in a society that regarded these people as no more than living tools, Paul's words once again represent a counter-cultural view. It's also important to note that in these verses, in the verses preceding these verses, Paul kind of views marriage and parenting as a divine relationship, okay, given to us by God. But he does not make that same claim for this to be the case for the institution of slavery. Now remember, it's important to say again that here, Paul is writing about an existing social structure. But in other letters, we see him calling out slavery as a sin. Okay, remember that. He's writing about an existing social structure, but in other letters, we see him calling out slavery as a sin. So we come to verse 5. Verse 5. Remember, Paul here is addressing Christian slaves in the churches in Ephesus, some of whom were in the employment of Christian households, but others of whom were not. Okay? Some of them would have been in the employment of Christian households, but others were not. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Here, Paul acknowledges a change for those slaves in first century AD who may have come to faith in Christ. Okay? He acknowledges the change. In addition to all the wonderful, unspeakable blessings of being made free from the power of sin and being made right with God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul also reminds these slaves that their human masters have been relegated because they now have a loving, heavenly Lord to whom they owe supreme allegiance to. 
And by reminding them of this, they are able to go about their work knowing that they are indeed free in the Lord. Amen? And so when Paul says, with fear and trembling, we mustn't confuse this with fear in the sense that one is so scared of even making a small mistake. Instead, these workers were to sincerely work well as their expression of their commitment to their divine Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul calls them to work as if they were working for Jesus. And friends and family, I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus is patient. Jesus is forgiving. He's patient and forgiving. But that this also means that they were to, we're going to see verse 6, they were to not only work while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing God's will from your heart. These workers were not merely to render eye service by working hard when they were seen, but instead, Paul calls them to go above and beyond the work they have been tasked with doing, because by doing this, get this, by doing this, they will be acting as free agents, transcending their social status. And so Paul calls them not to try and win favor with people, but instead to seek to follow Christ's example, follow Jesus, the ultimate servant king who, by the way, washed his followers' feet. Paul continues on, verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8 says this, Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does slave or free, he will, he will receive this back from the Lord. In other words, their service needs to be rendered with genuine goodwill because Paul actually says their service is to the Lord and not ultimately to their human masters. And even though these workers may not get what they deserve in terms of earthly reward, they can be assured, assured of eternal gain, eternal gain. And then Paul, just like Jesus, refers to rewards as a result of God's grace. There's a reward coming for them. And so you might say, John, oh, cool, you've taken on this whole journey. You've told us about the historical context. We've gone through the context within the Bible. But really, what does this mean for us living in Pretoria, South Africa, 2022? Well, scholars and Christians have said that it is correct it is correct to apply Paul's words here to Christians in employment. And so if you're a worker here today, in whatever form or fashion, these words apply to you. If you're thinking, oh, hey, I own my own business, I'm, I'm okay, we'll get to you later. And so whilst we thankfully live in a time and in a place where slavery has been abolished, the insights and the words of these verses still apply to us as Christians in employment. Yeah. And so, brother and sister, do you know that no matter how harsh your boss, your supervisor, your company, or your manager is, do you know that you're free in Christ? Or do you genuinely approach work with fear and anxiety? so scared that you may do something wrong? Or do you view your work 
as a joyful act of worship and obedience to God? Do you work hard, but only when you think it'll get you ahead? Or when you're being watched? And then when it's no longer beneficial for you to be seen working, you kind of slack off and let others pick up the slack. Do you only give in line with what you are compensated for? Do you work so hard out of fear and disapproval at work that it's costing your relationship with the Lord? It's having an effect on your relationship with the Lord. It's affecting the way you love your spouse, your children, your neighbors. It's affecting the way you serve your church family. Is your relationship with the Lord and the things that he has brought across your path taking a back seat to getting ahead or getting in the good books at work? Are we finding our identity at work? And what kind of attitude do you show up to work with? Would coworkers and colleagues consider you as being the salt and light of this world? Or would they be surprised to hear that you were at church this morning? Are you on time? Do you steal time? Or do you work certain of your coming heavenly crown, knowing that is your reward? Finally, we come to verse 9. We come to verse 9. Folks who employ others, who lead others. Masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now remember, remember again the context, Paul here is addressing Christians in the corporate worship gathering, some of whom, some of whom had slaves, because the churches in Ephesus did not have many people of higher social rank, but there must have been some because he wrote these words. Okay, so there must have been some people who had slaves. Now take note of this. His audience is not slave owners across the entire Roman Empire, or else I'm convinced that his message would have been harshly different. Okay? Instead, Paul here uses these words not to condone slavery, but to undermine it by speaking into it as a flawed social construct. And how does he do this? Well, he says, Masters, treat your servants in the same way that you yourselves expect to be treated. Treat people in the same way that you yourselves would like to be treated. Sounds familiar. Follow Jesus. So that meant that although they made requests of their slaves, they were to make these under the authority of their heavenly master. And so now both parties in this situation, slave and master, would be seeking to do the will of God when a Christian made a request. They'd both be seeking to do the will of God if the master is seeking to do the will of God. You see, family, vicious cruelty was rife amongst pagan slave owners because these slaves had absolutely no legal rights or defenses. But now Paul says that Christian households with slaves were to show themselves to be different, set apart, distinguished, and they were to treat one another kindly, fairly, and with dignity. They were to not view themselves as better than their servants. And in fact, in keeping with the ways of God's kingdom, more, 
More was expected from Christian household masters who had more privilege, who had more resources, who had more power, and who had more responsibility. More is expected. And so Christian employers or managers, team leaders, department heads, even within the church context, friends and family at Rooted Fellowship, how are you treating those entrusted into your employment or your care? How are you treating those who serve under you at work, at home, at church, and at play? How do you treat those at coffee shops, waiters and waitresses? How do you treat grocery store tellers? What about car guards, security guards, cleaners, helpers? How do you treat those family who in that moment in time, have nothing to offer you in terms of getting ahead in this life. Are you aware that as God calls us to emulate Christ, those with more power, privilege, resources, and responsibility are expected to lay all of that down in the service of others and to the glory of God and the furthering of his kingdom? Does it sound familiar? Jesus, who had equality with God, laid it all down all down for us and came, became a servant. Family, if our faith in Jesus is real, where does it prove itself? Because let's be honest, we can come here and pretend for two hours on a Sunday. We can, prove, we can pretend. Maybe even family group as well, maybe even serving. We can do it for a couple of hours. But if our faith in Jesus is real, it will prove itself in our households, in spaces where we feel most comfortable and at home, and in relationships with those closest to us, or in the relationships with those that we don't feel that we can get anything from. That's where we see Jesus. And so would people in those places, as they see you, and know you best, whether you are young or old, would they see Jesus in you? It is my prayer that as we come to the end of this text, we would follow Jesus. If you want to take one thing away, I said this earlier, follow Jesus' example. We examined parents and children, spiritual parents and spiritual children. We examined the relationship between them. We examined the relationship between employers and employees this morning. Follow Jesus, family. Follow Jesus. Those who have much, much is expected of us. We are called to lay it down for his glory and to follow Jesus in everything we do. I think it's important to also make no mention of something. In James 1 verse 27, it says, True religion is to look after orphans and widows. This morning we discussed the, the, the spiritual children within our church. And family, we are called as the family of God, the children of God, to serve orphans and widows. How are we doing that in our church? Do we know our kids by name? Do we know who they, who they are? How are we serving orphans and widows even outside this place? In the first century in, Ro in the Roman Empire, Christians were the ones who were, who were going and collecting child, children who were abandoned on, on, on rubbish dumps. They were distinguished. They were the folks adopting, fostering, loving, and looking after the vulnerable in society. May they be our example. May Jesus be our example this morning. We're going to stand as we pray to God and respond to this message. I invite you to stand.
Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we come before you once again saying, here are our hearts, Lord. They are open to you. May Make us more like you, Lord God. Lord God, where, where we see a need this morning, Lord God, where we reflect on our relationships with younger children, with our parents, Lord God, where we reflect on the families within our church, where we reflect on relationships at work. Lord God, I pray that you would bring to mind those that we need to say sorry to and those that we need to serve. I pray, Lord God, that as a church we would be stirred to action, to love and serve those who are less vulnerable than us, specifically children and specifically those, Lord God, in our employment. May we love and care for them and serve them, Lord God. May we be a people that are set apart, that look different to this world, Lord God, this morning. Lord God, this morning to the person who doesn't know you yet, and as they've been hearing about how you call us to live, Lord God, I pray that that would stir something up in their hearts. Would your Holy Spirit meet them, lead them to you, and lead all of us, Lord God, into a deeper relationship with you this morning. As we prepare to head out, Lord God, may we be salt and light. Equip us to be your obedient children as we engage with our fathers, our mothers, our spiritual families, those who we come into contact with at work, at play, at home. Help us to be your representatives, Lord God, as parents and as children, employees and employers. And we ask all of this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.